You're listening to Data Ask Them Anything. I'm your host, Zach Batters. I'm here today with my co-host, Mark Bradborn, and we have with us author Steve Wexler to talk about his new book, The Big Picture, but also to answer your questions that you have submitted through a lovely Google Sheet. How are you doing today, guys? I'm doing splendidly. Glad to be here today. Thanks for having me. And it is a pleasure to have you, Steve. I am doing well as well. Um, and I just, I love these sessions. I can't get enough of them. So we're going to kick today off. We have about 10 askers, uh, each of which had the option to ask three questions, many of which did not take advantage of that, but that's just fine. And we're going to start off with a magnificent Mark asking the first few. Well, thank you, sir. So the first question is coming from your co-author on the Big Book of Dashboards, Jeff Schaefer. And he wants to know with your new book, Who's the better narrator for the audio version, Morgan Freeman or Samuel L. Jackson? He says both would be terrific, but completely different styles. The, uh, the you know, had I thought of that, I mentioned to Jeff, I saw he tweeted this, we already booked Pee Wee Herman for this. But now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, you know, either Morgan Freeman or, or Samuel Jackson probably would have been better choices or, or maybe James Earl Jones. That, that there, that's what I'm looking for. Um, you think about it, here's a book, probably half of the book is pictures. So I think an audio book about a book that is mostly pictures, um, I think Samuel Jackson has the best bet of pulling that off. And uh, Pulp Fiction is one of my favorite movies. So I've got to go with Samuel Jackson. I think that's a solid choice. <laughs> I was thinking. You do reference Dolomite is my name in the book. And I want someone with some bombast reading that section. Yeah, I'm I'm in complete agreement with you. As as you know, Zach, I, I wanted to get a production still from Dolomite uh, is my name, but the uh, Netflix said no. So I had to say, well, imagine what this looks like in your head. So maybe, maybe it would work fine as an audio book. You never know. All right. So so the next set of questions, I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm just thinking it's Fight Club, right? Kevin just wants to start fights. So the first question is, who is your favorite Big Book of Dashboards co-author? Wow. This is, this is, he's, he's in such, he's, he's, he's a, he is such a troublemaker, isn't he? He really, um, he really is. And, um, that would be, it's a toss up between two. It's either Andy Schaefer or Jeffrey Cotgrave on that one. So I've narrowed it down to two and um, uh, there you go. It's a tough choice. Yep. And then he fires in with this one. Who's your favorite chart chat co-host? Well, then, then this is the, 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 uh, there, having mentioned uh, Jeff and Andy, uh, I have to make a nod to uh, Amanda McCulloch. There we go. Yes. What is that? Rose, rose between two thorns. <laughs> <laughs> or, or right. so, you know, someone who's sane and competent am amongst the uh, three stooges. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And then the last question. Um, who is your favorite Fleurledge twin? And based on the first two questions, I'm going to guess it's Ken. <laughs> well, the, the uh, well, the the you know, had you said my favorite Fleurledge brother, that's easy. Easy. That would be Zeppo Fleurledge. You know, who's <laughs> uh, often not nearly as appreciated as his uh, better known sibling. So I'm I'm sticking with Zeppo Fleurledge on that one. Oh my gosh. So our next set of three questions is coming from Rodrigo, who is a mainstay in a question asking. Usually his stuff is off the wall. We'll see where he uh, he comes in today. So 
Rodrigo's first question is, your workshop guru, share with us some tips on convincing C-suite folks that red-green color palette isn't recommended. Well, the, the, the two overarching thoughts on this, one comes from you know, one of the best and brightest that we've had in the Tableau community, and that's Kelly Martin, who wrote, you know, there's no way to unugly red and green. Um, and the other is, this has been well chronicled, all of, you know, so many of your listeners are, are, are really astute at this stuff. They know that, that roughly one out of 10 men suffer from some degree of red-green color vision deficiency. Um, the, I think the easiest approach is if they just refuse or they say, look, you know, I see green, I know what it means. I see red, I know what it means. Take Jeff's recommendation, which is you can adjust the green, you can adjust the red, darken the red, lighten the green, add some blue to the green. One is to me, it looks way better. And two, they become distinct colors to someone who has that particular deficiency. So rather than fight it, just make the modification. No one's going to go, no, I want the exact really nauseating colors that people with red green color deficiency can't see. They'll probably go, well, that's fine. The other thing is I learned this from a workshop attendee and both Jeff and I have written about it. This is really stealthy stuff. I'm going to tell you about this person came into work one time and just changed the dashboard. It had been red and green and she changed it to red and blue. And everyone protested, said, no, what, what did you do here? We're used to seeing red and green. And, and she knew, you know, yeah, but there are a bunch of people who can't see any distinguishing aspects of these two colors. Over a period of six months, she slowly changed the uh, green so that it was blue. You know, every few days, she just make a slight modification. After six months, it was pure red and pure blue. And as far as everybody was concerned, um, it had always been red and blue. And it reminds me of the movie, The Princess Bride, or originally the book, The Princess Bride, where, you know, uh, our protagonist um, uh, develops an immunity to this poison that he uses, iocane powder. Yeah. Over a period of six months, you do it gradually, people won't notice. I love that. That's subtle and evil. Yeah, there, there, there have been a bunch of people who've done some evil. <laughs> I was going to say evil, S-H-I-T, uh, evil stuff uh, in kind of getting people to like how to not print dashboards, getting people to, to interact with them versus printing them and how to you know, get the color palette to be something which is a little more accommodating. So there's some some cleverly evil people out there, but fortunately on the side of good. I, I love that. And I, I think my my further thought beyond that would be, do we need both colors on here? Sometimes you only need one. Like when I'm thinking about credit scores, you know, we always talk about good credit. I don't really think there's such thing as good credit. I just think there's like credit or not credit. And in terms of the stuff you're talking about, it could just be Tell us the stuff that's not working right now, because if stuff's working, they usually don't care how much it's working as long as it's working. That just means this thing I don't have to worry about. Tell me the things I need to worry about. I'm I'm in such huge agreement with that, that uh, there was this, you know, uh, the, the, you see people with these monster spreadsheets where it's just a sea of red, yellow and green. Um, and say, you know, we can do something really quickly to improve this. Just get rid of the yellow and green and just make it. Hey, I, I just want to you know make it easy for me to see 
where the problems are, and I can focus on that. I'm not saying that that's the best way to present the data, but I think you're spot on. And by the way, Zach, it's one of the regrets I have in one of the dashboards in the big book of dashboards that I'm using blue for good and orange for bad. And it should be just everything should be gray and the places where problems should be orange. So that's one of the things I do differently. So I think you're spot on with that. Yep. 100% agree. I, I was actually just presenting to a customer and made that exact point that I'm like, what's the important part? Color that part and leave the rest of it gray. 100%. Like the, you're getting the pro tips here. Like that's what we do at JLL. Our templates, we, it's like you want an alert color, like otherwise let's stick with gray. Let's not go crazy here. Uh, so Rodrigo's second question, and this one's going to gonna date you a bit, Steve, but he says, you are the first Iron Fist champion. Does everyone remember that way? Like with the, with the stone tablets, uh, how as has the... <laughs> How as the competition back in the day? Okay, that's a typo. That's not me. Yeah. What would you change about the competition as it is today? The, yeah, so this was for the IBM 360 uh, originally. <laughs> but, uh, and, um, the, the, and I say this with no false modesty. There's no way I'd be even make it through the feeder at this point. Um, m- my biggest issue with it is the stuff that both wins the feeder competitions and often wins the day there is so far removed from where I think Tableau's strongest suit is, which is the ability for people within a business context to find something important about their data and share it. So uh, I have never made a long form dashboard. I think the only time I see them is in Iron Viz season, where people are making these massive long-form dashboards. There are some some notable exceptions to it. So the only thing I wish they would change would be the rubric would be which thing is going to be the most useful as a tool to help people find something that's important in their data, and that that would have changed, I think, the results of, of certainly some of the Iron Viz. Uh, uh, winners, and it would change, you know, what the focus is. Instead of it being, oh, how beautifully designed, um, and it, and is is there good storytelling here? It would be the focus would be on analysis and usefulness uh, of it. So that would be my recommendation. Mark, what would you throw in there, having been on the Iron Viz stage yourself in a su- support capacity? I, I mean, I, I'm biased, but. I, I agree with Steve's point because I think Lindsay was robbed. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the the had had that been the criteria. I mean, the the, the other two things they were beautiful and enticing, but after fifteen minutes, you're done with them. Lindsay thing, yeah. you know, that stuff could still be in production today, and people mm-hmm. are using it to find important insights. So, and and had that been the criteria, it would have been, oh my gosh, this thing, this thing's an app. Uh, yeah. With legs, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to build on this. This is amazing. So, tend to yeah, agree. It's, it's. I think. I think it's hard. You know, they're trying to balance the the art with the function, and I feel like the art is getting in the way. Um, but I would. I would love to see more focus on the function and the usefulness, and being able to take something from the Iron Viz stage and use it as inspiration in the business context. Like, I think that would be the ultimate win. So, and the the other thing that I wish Tableau would make easy is that it seems, gee, if you want to win our Iron Viz, you need to have, I'm, I'm going to have to express it this way. I first heard this very technical term from Curtis Harris, who's a former um, Tableau Iron Viz champion, by the way, and he refers to it as curvy shit. And, <laughs> uh, and um, 
you know, that instead of just a line between these two things, it's either, you know, you know, whatever is your function that draws a curvy line between two things. And I think about all the effort that people go into pad data um, on stuff. I happen to like uh, um, trend line charts that have a slight curve in them um, and wish that that were an option that were in the tool. And if someone argues, well, wait a second, uh, you're introducing artifacts that aren't there. Um, and I'll say, but the straight line between Monday and Tuesday or between January and February, you're suggesting that it had, um, that, that there are no breaks in there. It went continuously on the shortest path between these two things between January and February, when in fact, the first half of January might've been really dormant and then things really picked up. I'd even argue if it's between two days, a sigmoid function tends to flatten things out at the beginning and flatten things out at the end. You probably don't have a lot of sales at midnight so that it, it would possibly work. So I think that argument of we're introducing something, well, the straight line introduces something that isn't necessarily there either. And yeah, I have to admit it, as much as I'm about you know functional and the stuff being clear, I do like curvy lines, okay? Arrest me. <laughs> Rodrigo's third and final question. Tell us, what were you doing when you learned that Tableau elected you as a Zen master? What did this title change in your life? And where do you place all of your Zen rocks? The, 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 I was very excited and pleased uh, about that. That was, I think, 2013. It was like the, the second cohort uh, about it. It didn't change anything. And um, Jonathan Drummy, it, it didn't change anything in terms about how I carried myself or what I should be doing or the contribution to the, uh, the, the community. Um, you know, it's certainly, you know, whatever um, raised my profile a bit within the community at the time. Um, but the Jonathan Drummy put together a, you know, a movie um, video, especially for, you know, you know, onboarding new Zen masters who every, I can't speak for them. I know I felt, oh my God, what am I doing here? I am a, um, uh, I'm a fraud. They must've made a mistake. And I need to start doing amazing things right now to justify that they didn't make a mistake. You know, so this, uh, I'm not doing enough to, to give them the confidence that they made the right decision. So, um, and Jonathan kind of says, just do exactly what you were doing before, you know, just, you know, whatever it was that you were contributing, continue to do that thing because it served the community then and it will continue to serve the community now. 100%. Like I, I remember somebody asking me the question after I'd been an ambassador for a year, they're like, so what's changed? I'm like, nothing. I'm still doing all the stuff I was doing before. I'm not doing anything more. And, you know, that's, that's why you get the thing you get. That's why the recognition happens. So, yeah. I would, I would, the only thing I'd say is, you know, as you make this journey, your amplifier gets bigger. You know, you started with a 10 watt amplifier and you're up to hundred watt or 250 watt. And it just means that more people are looking to you to what should you be doing? How should you be behaving? How should be nurturing? How should you own up if you make a mistake, you know, which is crucial you know, make it, make it, and say, you know, someone points out something, you did something, you know, that, that maybe you question your behavior, own up to it. 
And that that's the only thing which is, hey, that's great. You have a larger amplifier, but it means you have to be a little more careful about what you're saying. Yep, I, I agree. I, I felt all the exact same feelings uh, you did, Steve, when they told me earlier this year. Um, and one thing I've tried to embrace is uh, being more vulnerable than I was previously. Uh, so I've always been tried, tried to be vocal about like, hey, I don't know everything. I, I have insecurities. I've got imposter complex. I mean, yesterday I had a whole three tweet thread that took off talking about how, you know, I made a small mistake at work today and I felt really dumb and beat myself up about it all day. And everybody does it. And it's like, learn to sort of forgive yourself and, and be, be as forgiving to yourself as you would be to somebody else. Like it's so easy to be harder on yourself than you would be on a colleague that made a mistake. But in reality, like if a colleague makes a mistake, you work together, you fix it and you move on. But like, you know, I keep scoring myself more than I would on any other human and just sort of being vulnerable with that and putting it out there. So, so everyone, you know, with a bigger platform, everyone sees that it's, it's common and uh, it's okay to feel that. In terms of the reassurance of this and not knowing everything, um, you know, full disclosure, level of detail expressions make my brain hurt, especially nested level of detail. And thank goodness there's, there's a community out there in explaining these things, but I am often um, scratching my head. And, and there's, there's plenty of stuff that you would think, oh, my God, this guy is having a problem with this. Yeah, I'm having a problem with it. Not all this stuff comes easily to everybody. So our next set of questions comes from a guy named Zach who has a podcast, uh, and it's totally not me. But uh, he said, when embarking on a journey into a new book, how fully formed is the topic in the early stages, and is scope creep a concern? The in this case, the book was pretty well formed. That in that the the uh, the difference between this one and the one that I had the privilege of working with. Jeff Schaefer and Andy Cotgreave uh, got an agent this time around, and um, the book proposal kind of outlined everything that I was going to talk about and how I'm going to be talking about it. Now, you're certainly going to find new stuff coming in, and ooh, this is a little unclear, or I want to reorganize this, but a lot of it was was figured out, and it came from... Um, recognizing a need that seemed to be out there um, in doing the workshops around the big book of dashboards, two things became abundantly clear. So every time I start the workshop, uh, it's, it's a crash course in the fundamentals of data visualization. And it, and it's basically a, a, a quick run through of what I think is one of the best chapters in the book of the big book of dashboards. And then Andy and Jeff wrote almost all of it. And I'm thinking, doesn't everybody already know this stuff? And within five minutes, it's really clear. Oh no, these, you know, there's like so much stuff that you take for granted is eye-opening. These are the practitioners. These are the people making charts and dashboards. But then the other piece of it comes out, which is, oh my gosh, the practitioners don't understand this stuff. The people that need to be using their work really don't understand this stuff. Imagine if everybody in the organization just came into work with a fundamental understanding of, of kind of uh, a minimal fluency in data visualization, the language of data visualization, this wonderful made up word graphicacy, you know, that you don't have to explain, here's why bar charts work so well. Here's the problem with circles. Here's where a pie chart works well, and it's great. And here's why it fails most of the time, because people aren't using it correctly. Um, 
hey, you're, you're saying that you think a dashboard with a lot of colors would be a great idea? Well, here, let me show you where it's actually causing confusion and not helping you understand it. How great would it be if everyone just had, you know, just had that already and you're not trying to explain to people that's not a great way to look at stuff or 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 the spreadsheet that you cling to so dearly that's great no one's going to take away your spreadsheet but you're working so hard so that that's what kind of came up the only thing i wish i had been able to do was write a shorter book I wish it were shorter and, and, you know, I don't know if it's this Zach or a different Zach who has a podcast, but Zach, I had you review one of the chapters of the book. And um, I think the word you didn't, you didn't say, oh my God, this is just a really ridiculously long slog. <laughs> I think you said, wow, that's really intense. And it was a very important piece of feedback because I then cut this one chapter, which is uh, charts you should know love and possibly loathe. And I managed to cut that chapter by about 30%. And that was that that was really critical. So if I had one wish for this, I wish the book were a little shorter because I want it to be a weekend read. Well, I think people are going to blame me for, for not getting more, uh, more book for their book, but you actually may have just answered my next question, which I believe that the chapter you just referenced is chapter four, right? So in yep. your opinion, what's the most important chapter in the big picture? Um, I, did, I couldn't tell you what the most important chapter is. It may just be the introduction, just setting the stage, getting people to realize, ooh, you kind of, you, you know, you got the hook. And, and you and some other people know, you know, I probably went through 20 revisions of the introduction. By the way, anyone who wants that, you can have that for free. You know, that's, that's a free downloadable sampler. Just go to bigpick.me and you can download this. My favorite chapter may be... Um, the most uh, controversial, and that is um, the title of the chapter is is on why knowing your audience and their needs is the most important. Um, but I have a lot of problems with the infamous Menard chart. Um, by the way, he made like another forty charts. Some of them way more uh, useful for business, but this is the the, uh, the uh, attempt to uh, onslaught of uh, Moscow between 1812 and 1813, and this is thing Tufty has dubbed perhaps the greatest statistical chart ever drawn. And the other is the Florence Nightingale uh, wedge diagram, rose diagram. Some people call it a coxcomb, etc. And and you'll go to these workshops, or you'll see these pundits writing about it, waxing eloquent about it, and 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 they're amazing pieces of work. But you come out of these workshops thinking. Oh, I guess I should be making something like that. That really famous guy said how great this is. I guess I should be doing that in my organization. And answer is probably not, because both of those authors of those charts really knew their audience well. And it was very much a 19th century audience. In the case of Menard, the expectation was the person would be sitting at a big table in a drawing room with a ruler in hand. When was the last time you saw anybody looking at a chart or, uh, or a dashboard with a ruler? Okay, so that, that for, for me, I, I needed to explain the chart, talk about it, acknowledge that those two charts are amazing, and then uh, bring up Seth Godin's opinion and Stephen Coslin's opinion on it going, you know, I'm not really buying these charts for a business use. 
fair. And, and I'll, I'll admit, uh, getting a Tufty ban on Twitter is uh, on my bucket list. Like I want to have my hands registered as a weapon. I want to be, uh, get a lifetime ban from a restaurant, but not one that I'd want to come back to. And I want Tufty to, to block me. But yeah, it's I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly, particularly about some of the data viz that is held up as exemplary. Doesn't mean it's not brilliant, but it might be we might be holding it up for the wrong reasons and sending the wrong messages. Well, I'm going to give it a, 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 a unabashed plug for an initiative that Marcus put together: real world fake data, which is I, I'm I'm that's the thing that's missing. You know, which is, well, that's a great chart, but show me something that I can use in business that we can apply now that's going to help me. And that's the last chapter of the book is, all right, these two things were held up as these amazing charts that, you know, in one case, absolutely changed the British healthcare system. Who wouldn't want to completely change the world? But you're not going to do it with that chart right now. So, well, let's see some examples of some things that people deployed um, that change their organizations, change the way the business thought about doing business or how they were conducting business. That's the type of stuff that you want to see. And that's the stuff that I'm seeing, you know, time after time coming out of uh, real world fake data. I just love that, that project. Well, thank you, Steve. Yeah, it's, it's actually been a, a quite a pleasure watching the number of just great stylized bar charts coming in from from that project it's warmed my my uh, business functional heart um and zach i gotta say the minute steve mentioned tufty i was like zach's gonna mention the ban zach's gonna mention the ban and he did i was not disappointed <laughs> there there by the way it's 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 like it's not that exclusive a club anymore you know it's like zach you know it's 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 he's you know he's blocked a whole you know a lot of people from following him. So I'm just saying, like, I, I think it would feel possibly more exhilarating than the day I was told I, I was going to be a Zen master. And I, I mean, look, at this point, like, I just feel like I'm missing out more than anything. Like, it, it's not, I still want it, but now I'm just like, what am I doing wrong? Like, come on, <laughs> where are you at, Tufty? <laughs> the, 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 um, you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing everything right, in fact. So I, I, I would say just keep doing what you're doing and not worry about uh, um, uh, being banned by some, being blocked by somebody. Well, I do have one last question for you from me or who are this person who's definitely not me. So what's a typical workday like for you, the balance between teaching, consulting, writing, all the different stuff that you do? What's, what's it like or is there a typical workday? The the well, I'm pretty proud. I managed to cram in a full two hours of work into an eight hour day. It's just a uh, uh, remarkable. Um, boy, have I, I think I've spoken with a lot of people during this crazy year plus, and how a lot of it is a real slog. Um, I'm probably not handling things as healthily and and in as disciplined a fashion um, that there aren't these borders between home and work and what I'm doing and things like that. Certainly if, you know, it's workshop day or a class day, or I'm consulting with the client, but otherwise it's, gee, I, I need to feel that I'm doing enough to move these projects forward. So um, there, there's always deadlines. There are always projects that need to be done and I'm making sure that they're getting done without it kind of killing me too much. I, 
and look, everyone now has been working at home as finding those challenges. Um, I have um, kids that are out of the house. I do not have that incredible um, both delight, but also uh, difficulty of of everyone being housebound and how do you deal with it and while having work at the same time. But I do tend to, gee, there isn't this clear designation between I'm working, no, I'm chilling out. And it's it's kicked the crap out of me a couple of times. Yeah, honestly, I think we've all been there. <laughs> We're also all recording this when we should be eating lunch. So that's yeah, another e- example of uh, you know us sort of lacking boundaries. That's right. So, all right. The next question, this is the first time this has happened. This is a question from an anonymous, legitimately anonymous. I have no idea who it was. Um, ask her. So first question is, what do you think is one thing data professionals put too much emphasis on in their careers or development or growth? Don't feel qualified to give a good answer to this. Hate to, hate to disappoint. Um, I don't know if there's any one thing. Um, I, you, you, you know, I know when I was first putting my shingle out for this, so I, I won't go into it. I've had a very strange career and then how I ended up here is not what I would have been expecting to be doing. But certainly when I started uh, you know, consultant for hire uh, 10 plus years ago, there was pressure to, gee, I, I, what can I do to get people to notice that I have something to contribute? So I felt a lot of pressure to be producing useful blog posts. And it was interesting, the more stuff that I just published and made available for free, uh, the more that my phone rang for assistance with this particular sub sub niche within data visualization, you know, visualizing survey data, boy, you know, that really makes you a big hit at cocktail parties, by the way, you tell somebody you visualize survey data, you are just commanding, you think Cotgreave commands attention with the magic tricks and stuff like that. Ha, talk about liquored scales. This is like Captain Holt in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> he'd, he'd probably be way into this. <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> I mean, Steve, so, Steve, this is a family show getting too sexy with survey data here. Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and it is Likert, not Likert, by the way. Um, so uh, I, I, I get the feeling, the, you know, pressure. Also, it's, it's you know, some of the stuff that you see people doing is just so ridiculously um, well-developed, well-rendered. I didn't want to use the word complicated, but you'll look at something and, and go, well, I'm never going to make something like that. You know, the, the, these pieces of art that some people in our community will create. Both of you, by the way, are kind of responsible for, for that type of, I'm not going to make anything that looks half as beautiful as that. Um, well, you don't have to. And kind of finding where is it that, that I can make a difference? As opposed to this, oh my gosh, I've got to be great at all this stuff. Um, I think it's probably the best all-rounder I've met in our in our business. It may be Jeff, Jeff Schaefer, that 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 he has a lot of depth and breadth in a lot of different things. Um, and you're probably not going to be a Jeff Schaefer. You know, figure out the things that you like that you're good at, um, or or devote to. 
um, hey, here's where I think I can serve an audience a certain way and focus on that. And just don't feel you have to be great at everything or that you have to be great at anything within one week. Give yourself a little time to grow and get good at this stuff. It's one of the things I point out in my workshops. I share some of my early work um, and, and you would look at it and would say, oh, least likely to ever be really good at this stuff. It was really bad. So it is, it is possible to learn this stuff and develop and it may, may take a while. Don't be too hard on yourself. And that kind of leads into the next question from this anonymous source. Um, what's the one thing that they should focus on instead? Like, is there one thing that you looking back would have focused on? The, the, well, everything that I do now in this, you know, 15 plus years in data visualization, I, I, you have both heard me mention this, but I would say within visualization, your gig for your intended audience for that you've you know, who is your audience? What's the message? Provide the greatest degree of understanding with the least amount of effort. You are here to help somebody else. You are here to provide something that's going to make it easier for them to make decisions faster, which is kind of the subtitle of the, of, of the big picture. That's what you're here for. Is what you're doing going to be helping them? Or are you instead showing off how clever you are? Uh, with some fancy visualization. Oh, I'm going to make a sand key diagram and just blow them away. Well, if that's what's warranted for this, great. Or are you just showing off that you know how to make a sand key? So if you're putting your audience in mind and really have uh, uh, customer empathy, you're, you're going to succeed. Solid, solid advice. Um, all right. So the next three questions come from Judith. And the first one is, and this is a little more light. It's a little lighter. So it's good. This is the first, first half of this has been very super insightful. So um, she asks uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um, the ability to generate more superpowers. It's like, if you had, you know, what would your one wish be? And the genie gives you one wish. Oh, I'd like 10 more wishes, please. You know, that's the, uh, so it would be, all right, the ability to create more superpowers. So I don't have to on the spot, think about what my one superpower would be right now. That's right. Um, her next question is what is your favorite non-data book? Of all time, it's probably Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time. Um, of the stuff that I've read recently, non-data books, um, um, mistakes were made, but not by me. Um, and Tim Hartford's new book, which people would say, nah, that's a data book. Well, I guess it is. It's called The Data Detective. So um, at least in the, in the US. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd have to say a wrinkle in time. All right. And her last question is, if you were a color, what would it be? Peacock blue. You know, I, th I felt like you were going to say blue. You feel like a blue guy. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> but, you know, but there's, it's, it's, it's like a lighter, more vibrant. It's, it's a happy blue. Um, yeah. So peacock blue. That's right. really fast. Do you, do you, you need, you do, need do you need that? Do you need the Pantone color? Do you need the hex value? I don't. I'm going to need that for my preferences file. <laughs> no, I, I kind of remember this from fourth grade and doing industrial arts. It was a pretty hip elementary school 
like we learned just how large Africa is, you know, back then compared to, you know, uh, other, other, uh, continents and how much stuff you could put in. And, and we were, uh, studying the Vikings in fourth grade and we had to make our own, you know, everyone took shop and everyone took industrial arts, industrial arts was sewing, cooking, stuff like that. And we had to make our own costumes and tunics. And, uh, I remember my tunic was going to be peacock blue and the cape was going to be wine color. And I just remember, you know, seeing all these things and the dyes and the colors and really liking peacock blue. So, um, uh, you know, to my fourth grade teacher, particularly uh, uh, Camille, who was the industrial arts and uh, Mario Messi, who was the fourth grade teacher. Yeah, you, you guys are still in my head. That's amazing. I, I don't remember anyone's name from, from my elementary school. So you're, you're doing way better than I am in terms of uh, memory retention. Oh, well, they're, they're, and well, yeah, yeah. And it only gets better as you get older, Zach. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So I, back to the serious stuff. So uh, we have Kathan asking, do you think getting Tableau certified helps? I've been creating uh, visuals my entire undergraduate years, and I'm very comfortable with all kinds of stuff, but I've always wondered about this. So it, I hate to, you know, start answer a question by starting. Gee, that's a really good question because every time I think about it, I think how Richard Nixon used to collect <laughs> his thoughts and answer. Someone would ask a question, and he would go, "Well, let me just say this about that." And so, this is a good question, and I don't know the answer. I tend to have problems with tests versus I want to see a portfolio of somebody's work, or I want to give you a couple of problems and see how you go about solving it. Uh, and by the way, I consider solving problems as open book as it gets. You know, go to the community, get help, find resources. Don't say it's your work when it's not. But the the you know, how do you get stuff done in the real world? So a better person to ask this question to would be Tom Brown, who runs the information lab. You know, how, how do they go about deciding who they're going to hire and stuff like that? So, um, so I don't know enough about the certifications and how much they get, you know, how much is it just, hey, I managed to cram to answer a test versus, no, I had to produce, you know, a portfolio of work and you know, the people who are looking at it were pretty good at being able to judge it. I think the certified professional is is probably falls into that. So sorry, I don't know enough about um, uh, where where that is, you know, what they're actually asking and is it a good measure? But I would say if if I were looking to hire you, I'd love to see a portfolio of your work and, I'd, you know, give you some stuff to do and see how you tackle it. Yeah, and, and I'll say back in my prior life when I was actually doing hiring, I would take a well-formed portfolio over the listing of a certification on a resume any day because I actually did tech interviews with folks who had certifications who obviously studied for the tests because they couldn't apply it. So not with you. Yeah. So we have one question from Ken Flerlidge, brother of Kevin. There are a number of analytics data viz Tableau experts who come from a music background, including you. Why do you think this is? Are there similarities between music and data? And as a side note, RJ Andrews was also going to ask you this. Uh, he and I talked the other day. Oh, well, there, there are a lot of similarities to how you look at it and, and the, uh, just looking at a musical score and how it's set up. But even if you don't read music, there's how these things kind of fit together. Um, and there's, yes, you think of emotion and you think of beauty, but there's also kind of 
solving an elegant puzzle in in writing a piece or performing it or arranging it you know out that there's storytelling that's involved with it you know and I'm probably going to start with a light introduction and then layer things coming in and then it's going to build to this climax maybe it ends that way or maybe it comes down um the other thing is do you know how hard it is to make a full-time living as a musician we got to find some other way to get work <laughs> man <laughs> you know that's the that's that's, right. that's really the main reason that you know i started mm you know if you look at the arc of my career you know there on my there's about me page it's like oh god this guy has an undergraduate degree in music is a master's degree in music oh you know he spent summers at eastman school music doing this that and the other ah, orchestrated a broadway show worked on these albums oh what happened here well i wasn't making a really good living so i got him doing stuff with computers and software um so that, for me that you know that you know that's certainly a major reason for it incidentally the data visualization that made me decide, oh, I got to meet Jeff Schaefer, was his Iron Viz entry, the feeder contest for um, 2014 Iron Viz. And it was on the quantified self. And it was, hey, here's what I do. Here's how I spend the day. And it showed that a fair amount of his efforts are around his being a, a really marvelous classical trumpet player. Uh, it turns out he has a master's degree in music. And, and just went, oh my gosh, someone who's making something this beautiful in Tableau and the analysis of it and the structure of it, but has also put this much effort into mastering uh, a musical instrument, I've, I've got I've to connect with this guy. So that's how we became fast friends. It, it's fast. So I'm a musician as well. And as, as you start thinking about music in general, there's a lot of pre-attentive attributes in a score, like position, uh, frequency of things happening. Like you can show music to a non-musician and they can kind of figure out that as it goes up, it's going to go higher. And as it goes down, it's going to go lower. Like there's a lot of parallels when you really start thinking about it. The, the, the I, I agree with you. Every time I think about, you know, the typical way of, of notating music, with, you know, the staff, I go, this is friggin' brilliant. You know, there's some stuff here which is just incredible. But you know, if you look at uh, Georgia Lupi's work, she's clearly been influenced by the musical uh, staff. Jeff's favorite dashboard is her data visualization about Nobel Prize winners, and he and I have had big disagreements about: Do you show that in uh, a dashboard design workshop, or do you not show it? And and because because I'm thinking, well, this is an incredible piece of art, but uh, when was the last time you ever saw a dashboard in business rotated 45 degrees um and 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 but but good discussions came from that but she is clearly influenced um by the musical staff and there's so so much stuff that uh, uh that's in that dashboard that is influenced by how you notate music all right um our next couple of questions and I'm probably going to butcher it, but Friedrich, I, I believe is the pronunciation on this one. Um, and he's asking, uh, what is your least favorite type of chart and why? Um, wow. Usually I get the other question and I have this, you know, the, the, I don't know if it's the contrapositive or the, um, 
or, or the inverse, whatever it is, you know, usually it's what's your most favorite chart type. And I'll say whichever one best answers the question um, that the audience has. You know, I don't have a favorite chart type. Uh, what is my least favorite chart type? The one that can, uh, most obscures um, whatever it is that the person is trying to understand. The, the, the oh, wow, you know, um, a, uh, uh, this data is really clear and it's obvious. What are we going to do to obscure this as much as possible? I know. Let's bring in this um, multi-dimensional chord diagram. It's not just a chord diagram, but it actually is a three-dimensional. So some of the chords go this way and that way. That'll really confuse the heck out of people. There you go. So um, I'm not a just slap you know, the band in the middle. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> They're exactly right. And it's rotating, <laughs> you know, and, and the user can control what the axis is that the band is rotating on. Oh. Um, the, I, I will say I'm not a, really, even, you know, um, word cloud, eh, you know, maybe it has its point. If, you know, there's one giant word and everything's really small. Okay. You made your point um, with that. So I, I, that, that would be my, yeah, whatever is the least good at that particular assignment for that particular time would be my least favorite. So I'm going to slightly reword this next question from him based on your answer. Um, so if your client is insisting on using that, you know, visualization that is going to obscure the data the most, what is your process to talk them out of it? The look, you may not win the argument, and I have a whole, you know, big part of the big picture is to help you politely, intelligently win some data visualization arguments, and which is make your case, make your point. And what you hope the client is into is, well, which thing answers the questions we want to answer more easily? This, you know, the busy pie chart, or here are a couple of other approaches that I think would work better. So this, you know, what, what are the questions we want to answer? Well, how hard is that to determine with the pie chart with 17 slices versus this other element here? And, and they may dig in their heels, you know, which means they're kind of being a jerk and there's not a lot you can do about it. One recommendation I have to colleagues and workshop attendees is think of yourself as being a major league baseball player, a hitter. And if you succeed 30% of the time, you're a superstar. So is trying to get people to adopt these new things, you know, go, look, I tried, I made my best case. I showed alternatives that I thought were way better, but they didn't adopt it. All right. You're going to, they're, they're, you're going to fail. Um, the, the other thing with the pie chart is, so I think pie charts get a bad rap and I've got something in the, 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 how big is this one slice I care about compared to the whole? Nothing's better. I can see that's a little less than a quarter. I can see it's a little more than a half. I mean, instantly. And I show these measuring cups in the book that are shaped like wedges of a, of, of a pie quarter, third, half, whole. You don't have to look and see, which one is this, honey? Is this the quarter or the one third? I don't have my reading glasses on. You can see immediately that's one third. It's amazing. And that works really well. So how can you marry the pie chart that people love so much with 
a bar chart that has 32 segments in it. And there's, oh, wow, takes the best of the uh, bar chart, takes the best of the pie chart. It's like chocolate and peanut butter together. It's the, uh, the peanut butter and chocolate chart. It's a bar chart with a pie chart. Love it. Um, so he, next question is coming from another Fred. Um, and he asked the same question. So we're going to skip that one. But his second question is, do you prefer tiled or floating containers? The um, uh, I am so <laughs> I live in fear of having to resize a dashboard, you know, that's been that I've gotten just so um, and that I run into trouble with both of them. And I've got to say, you know, I hate to disappoint you, Fred, but I'm kind of a wuss with this. You know, it's it's a uh, tile or floating. I am neither uh, team tile nor team float. I've been known to use both. What will often happen is I will certainly want to have tiled stuff inside that container. The question is, am I going to float this one or am I going to um, tile it? It depends on the situation. Um, I still find myself kind of, you know, fighting uh, at times to get the, ah, I want these things to line up. And uh, I did come up with a way to deal with, you know, uh, synchronized scrolling of, of multiple charts, I think is really simple and takes advantage of um, uh, cool aspects of a container and a blank that will expand and collapse automatically based on how many rows are in the other, uh, other items. I feel like I need to read a blog post. Uh, it's it's simple synchronized scrolling um uh, on this case and it and it got me out of a jam with a client i have to check that out sounds amazing the the last question and i think this is a great question to end on is uh if you were asked to name one person as a data hero who would that person be and why you know, something comes to me immediately. I'm wondering if, you know, tonight I'm going to go, oh, I should have said so-and-so. Uh, it's Hans Rosling, um, um, the person who came up with the Gapminder, the TED Talk from 2006 that people still look at today and had a huge effect on them. Um, he, this was someone who was using data and visualization to help people really understand the world. And he was fighting desperately people's misconceptions about the world. And in fact, that the world is a much better place than it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And he's going to prove it to you using data and data visualization and ridiculous homespun charm. You want a clinic on how to give a presentation? This is the guy to, uh, to watch. Um, so if you've not seen the TED Talk from 2006, TED Talk, Hans Rosling, watch it. You're welcome. And if you have not read Factfulness, it is one of two books I've read twice. I thought it was so important. Uh, probably read Wrinkle in Time six times. But um, um, so cannot cannot recommend it uh, enough. Yeah, that's it's it's fantastic. And and you know the just as a, as a side note, so he was one of the keynotes at one of the Tableau conferences, I think 2014, and. I got to sit next to him at breakfast um, and the, 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 so I remember, you know, came into the room where, you know, the, the 
bunch of people were invited for this honor. And he's kind of holding court over on the side. And I joined the group that's there. And then they say, oh, can people, you know, please sit down. And you know, ballroom tables, you know, probably a total of 40, 50 people in the room. If And I realized I'm about to sit down right next to Hans. And I, I look over to Jock McKinley, who's one of the founders of Tableau. And I say, do you, you know, do you want to sit here? And and he and he says no. You sit. I sat next to him in London. Um, you can sit next to him. And he, I'm right next to friggin' Hans Rosling, and he's incredibly charming and delightful. And we're having animated conversation. And I mentioned to him, hey, my um, my daughter is studying global health in college. Can I get a picture with you? And he says, shall we be? pretend to be engaged in very lively banter and so it has the two of us gesticulating madly so i if you if you do a search if you go to datarevelations.com datarevelations is my website and if you do a search for hans rosling you will find my you know sadly he died in 2017 um but you you will find my both my recommending that people read factfulness but you also see a picture of um of me and Hans having a this wild, just you know, crazy, animated conversation that's clearly staged, and I was very grateful for him for doing that. That is fantastic. I love that. That's exactly what I want from a Hans Rosling story. And yes. uh, check out the show notes for a link to the video. Uh, Steve introduced me to Rosling by showing me that TED Talk in one of his classes. Cha- changed the way I think about the world. Not no joke between that and factfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's it. I mean, that's all the questions. And this has been uh, an amazing, insightful hour. <laughs> it's been great. Well, it's a uh, gentleman. You were two of my uh, favorite practitioners uh, in the field. Thanks for the opportunity uh, to discuss this. Um, let's see, plugging stuff. The um, the new book, The Big Picture, came out May 18th. And of all the books about data visualization, it is definitely one of them. Um, the short URL to get to where you can find out about it and download a free sample is bigpick.me. It'll be in the show notes below. Steve, thanks for coming on today. This has been a Data Ask Them Anything uh, for Zach Bowders and Mark Bradborn signing off. Data Ask Them Anything is a production of Data Plus Love. Our music is Bad Company by Black Room, courtesy of Take Tones. Hey, you're still here? Um, you're probably waiting for like the next podcast uh, to kick in, probably something better. Um, thanks for hanging on. Anyway, if you're picking up what we're putting down, uh, consider buying us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash d-a-t-a-p-l-u-s-l-o-v-e. Um, just, you know, drop $3 in our tip bucket. It helps us buy better equipment. It helps us uh, pay for razor blades to keep me from looking like a wolf man. And it keeps uh, Mark's head looking so shiny and beautiful. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll never put anything behind a paywall. And thanks to your patronage. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. 
Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you can get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one you won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.